what happens when you realize that you're not in charge here. You can't control these people. Some of them are good. Some of them are bad. But it's also interesting, the dynamic of the other side of America, which is super fearful and judgy. These notions of celebrity. And it's not just what do we do with a superhero from a destruction or the stadium type of world, but also these are role models for your kids. How do we as a society think if we live in New York, the greatest city in the world, but also we're not in control of it at all? be with you uh wrong podcast ryan why does your voice sound so weird wait wait who is this it's john bon jovi uh maybe if you're living on a prayer ah okay okay it's friend of the pod john kreiner <laughs> our past guest from our episode about ayako the japanese manga examining post-war patriarchy <laughs> wait who am i talking to dude it's Roman. this is my podcast your podcast i thought this was ryan's <sighs> I am the captain now. <laughs> <laughs> Look, man, I, I don't know what's going on, but I got a note telling me to come back to Ryan's podcast and read another weird Japanese comic by some guy named Junji Ito. Oh, God, John, please, please, please tell me you did not do that. Think of your wife. Think of your kids. <laughs> don't worry, man. That comic looked like some weird ass hacky shit. So I decided to read some random painted comic that not so subtly attempts to portray the dated superhero genre in a highbrow light. I'm Roman Segel. And I am not Ryan Joe. And we are two dudes singing Michael Bolton ballads till Ryan gets back. <laughs> How am I supposed to live without you, Ryan? This week, we're reading Marvels, the 1994 miniseries by Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross. Marvels retells the origins of the Marvel Universe from a decidedly pedestrian point of view. Over four volumes, we traverse New York City through the decades, from the eve of World War II and the first appearance of larger-than-life heroes, to the 60s and 70s when superheroes were part of mainstream pop culture and things took a darker turn. Guiding us on our journey is Phil Sheldon, a photojournalist obsessed with these marvels, as he calls them. Some of the biggest moments in Marvel's comics history is shown from the perspective of a bystander who finds himself and the rest of his fellow New Yorkers at the center of a changing world. Through his eyes and camera lens, we see how the everyday people of the world interpret and react to colorful costumed heroes and their larger-than-life adventures. Marvels was written by Kurt Busiak, a writer who has gone on to tell many unique perspective stories of the superhero genre, like Astro City. But beyond a great story, what really put this book on the map when it came out in the 90s was the photorealistic painted artwork of a young Alex Ross. His style was like nothing any of us comic book readers had ever seen before, so the book really left its mark and made Ross a comic book superstar, making a career painting realistic depictions of pop culture's animated heroes in comics and cartoons. Immediately after Marvel's, Ross would go on to paint Kingdom Come, which was actually our first episode of Quarantine Comics. Now, while Kingdom Come tells a dark tale about the end of the DC Universe, Marvel's literally paints an optimistic tale about the beginning of the Marvel Universe. It was truly one of the most unique comics created in a crowded mainstream field that many thought had nothing new to offer, and it was recently evenly adapted, as I learned, into an audio drama podcast. And speaking of audio drama, while we wait on Ryan to seduce Kim Jong-un's sister so he can get the missile launch codes to launch himself back to America, joining us is longtime industry friend to both Ryan and I, John Kreiner. Welcome back to Quarantine Comics, John. Great to be back to your podcast and Ryan's. But seriously, <laughs> dude, how is Ryan such a slacker? I mean, you had a kid and he gets to go to Korea? 
<sighs> well, I mean, he is quarantining in a small apartment for two weeks and has to put his poop in a biohazard bag, all just so he can spend another two weeks with his in-laws. So I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, there's nothing better to, than doing a podcast every week for a year with you. So I had to go across the world to do it, huh? The, these are true facts, old friend, but I want to get down to business. So look, last time we had you on the pod, we were reading some non-superhero comics, so we didn't get to talk about your tastes in the more pop culture side of the medium. So I guess before reading Marvels, how familiar were you with mainstream superheroes like at Marvel and DC? Yeah, as probably your average person exposed to superhero movies over the last 15 years, that's probably most of my experience. Like I read Watchmen, which is, you know, not a big part of this, but just through osmosis and watching, you know, the Batman, X-Men, Wolverine movies. I, I've seen some, but it's largely been through film and TV more than anything read. It's not something I necessarily grew up with or anything like that. So as a kid, did you know who these characters were? Like, did you recognize Spider-Man or Batman or even more obscure stuff like different X-Men and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of that, what I get, like there were shows on Cartoon Network uh, oh, right. and that stuff. So, uh, I mean, they, and they're pop culture icons. So I would know who they were, but I wasn't necessarily a, a leaned in fan. I, I guess one question I like to ask a lot of people is like, did you know their secret identities? So back then, before the movies, did you know that Spider-Man was Peter Parker? Did you know who Jimmy Olsen was? Like the side characters, the secret identities, did you know a little bit more about them? Or was it just Spider-Man's a guy in a suit that swings webs? No, I mean, I think Spider-Man, Batman, Superman, those were the big ones. I, I, th I think the big ones, I think for side characters, probably not. Okay. Well, look, as I said before, when Marvels came out, it hit me right in the middle of my teen comics fandom. And this is when the X-Men cartoon, I think, had just come out and Batman, the animated series. And, you know, we had like Tim Burton movies, but this is before comics were becoming mainstream. It was a thing mainstream pop culture was figuring out. So... I don't know. I guess the, the question for you is, because I have weird feelings about this book, you know, my relationship with it when it came out. But now mm. we've lived through the MCU. We've seen these characters come to life in a realistic setting. Does this book that attempts to do that same thing, does it hold up? You know, it's a good question. I mean, I enjoyed it for what it was. I mean, even in reading the book, it comes with like commentary between each book. And I for the most part, skipped it and just focused yeah. on the book. And I kind of mentioned before, like I don't have a, a ton to compare it to. And everything I really do have to compare it to is very poppy versus something a little bit more highbrow. So, I mean, I enjoyed it for what it was. I guess my question back for you is holding up to what? Is just to time or to other works that you're thinking of? Well, I mean, the analogy I sometimes use is the Goonies. I never saw the Goonies as a kid, even though it was like mm. a movie of our childhood, or I guess you wouldn't have been born. No, <laughs> but Goonies, Goonies was so. <laughs> no, but I never watched it until college. And when I got to college, people were like, this is the greatest thing ever because they had their childhood wrapped up in this movie. And I saw it and I was like, is it really? You know, <laughs> you know? Mm. so it's been almost 30 years since this book came out. And again, when it came out, it was comics. If you wanted to be serious about comics, you had to read the independent stuff. Superhero stuff wasn't, it was only starting to get serious with like some writers like Mark Wade and Kurt Busiak. But for something like this to like catch fire like it did was amazing. And I go back and read it. And back then it was the best thing since sliced bread. And I'm not sure. If it was this time around, again, I've had almost 30 years of reading a lot of other stuff in between, have been exposed to 
seeing my heroes realistically portrayed, even the, the, the art and the painting, Alex Ross has always come across as the guy who makes your superheroes look real. But we now live in an era where our superheroes are real. Does that make sense? Like mm. Chris Hemsworth and Tobey Maguire, blah, 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 Hugh Jackman. They all exist as people that are recognizable. Yeah. I almost found the art more abstract than realistic this time around. And so that's what I mean, I guess, when did it feel realistic to you? Maybe that's the first question. I think it goes back to being relatively new to the medium of graphic novels. So I expected it to be a graphic, not like a video game with high def graphics or movie in HD. So, I mean, for me, the art, I mean, look, I don't have like an acquired taste for, for comic book art. So for me, it's if it was bad and it was a distraction, that would have been an issue. But I felt like it was realistic. I felt like it was human, but I would say more on the emotional side struck me than art necessarily. The writing, the writing. Right. Well, so uh, what are your overall impressions of the story then? How did you find Marvel's this, like flip of the camera from the pedestrian side? versus the superhero side. It was a good reminder, right, of how we would feel if our cities were being turned into stadiums, right? And <laughs> I was thinking about this before, and they didn't live in a world with Hogwarts, right, where you can just, like, wave a wand and fix this stuff. Like, they lived in a world that needed permits, and people were dying, and these are buildings falling down. And so this idea of what happens when, at any point in time, your city can get destroyed and it's going to take years to build back and at what cost and what's the benefit? You know, I really liked the question. You know, I think there are points in times where I was like, could this be summarized in a tweet? Like, are we just watching the same emotions played over 40 years? But I think in watching the, the superheroes develop and, and the world shift from total cluelessness to more micro fear around, you know, mutants or certain types of powers or what the future beholds. I thought it was good. I, I enjoyed it for what it was. And I appreciated the perspective. The, the one thing that stuck with me this time around was almost like a living in today's world that we live in, reading this as uh, an unintentional commentary on our time today. And it's the mm. People magazine-ness of people's perception of superheroes, like the crazy, you, you mentioned like the arena, almost like the reality show. That's how people were treating this shit. Like, okay, even after Galactus like invades and it's literally God comes and delivers judgment day, people's brains can't wrap their heads around it. And the next day they go back to being like, ah, it was a hoax. And I used to say, yeah. if you remember like the movie Independence Day, right? Aliens come down and attack the earth. This is like, you know, and Will Smith saves us with Bill Paxton giving a good speech. But at the end of it, it brings the whole world together. This momentous thing. And with the pandemic, I feel like we've lived through like a or we are living through a pretty horrific thing and like the aliens coming down and we can't even agree on the facts about it. And we're more concerned with how how are we going to get basketball and football back to normal? How, how do we get back to a sense of normalcy? And so I guess less an indictment on reaction to trauma and more an indictment on our inability to deal with societal trauma. Like we just can't deal with these things. So we have to make it focus on the minutia, the people magazine-ness of it, right? And that he shows it in some of the headlines where they're talking about the outfits and who's divorcing who and with these almost like celebrity pop culture-ness of it all. Yeah, they're real questions. And you got to think like if you were living through this, you don't know who's good and evil, right? Like I, I know Batman, I don't, I don't think was in this, but it's like 
all right, some guy in a suit is that's, that's, flying that's around, <laughs> is, uh, is flying through Gotham. You're like, well, is he good or is he bad? Like, all I know is some people were pretty scared and you might not have the time to think through that. And I was I'm reading this book on the side of Walter Isaacson's new book on CRISPR and Jennifer Doudna and yeah. like the way they're talking about the morals that come with the ability to edit genes. And that's something mm-hmm. where you have like decades to think about it and you can have a debate and you can really understand each of the different concepts. And it's moving fast in, in that world. And if you just have superheroes flying around. You're trying to figure out who's good, who's evil. And this is a world where the newspapers, the TV, the radio, it really was an era of mass media. I, I think they, it's an interesting role that Phil finds himself in right in the thick of it. Well, it's interesting. The book I was reading in parallel to Highbrow along with you <laughs> is I was reading Ben Rhodes' uh, second book. He's Obama's former foreign policy advisor. Uh, he wrote The World As It Is. I can't remember the after the fall. And he, he's talking about the rise of autocracy. And he he talks about technology and the role it's been playing, be it uh, Facebook or short attention span, news cycles, etc., But an analogy I've long held to, and he talks about, Scott Galloway talks about, is if you think about progress as like an exponential curve, and the beginning of the 20th century, last century, was, you know, we had decades and generations to deal with new technologies, right? So the car comes out, three generations of societal norms of how to interact with the car, the telephone, even the atom bomb in the Cold War. And if you picture this exponential curve of us like walking up the hill, the last 20 years of technological change in how we communicate and consume and exchange ideas has gotten so steep. And I don't think we've had the maturity to deal with it. And we're almost like falling backwards and we're making mistakes and it's being abused. And I feel like that's what's going on with superheroes. Like it happened so fast in the forties. It was just a few in world war two, but especially in New York city, all of a sudden there's superheroes everywhere the world is being taken over by supervillains every other day and people's emotional and social maturity to deal with it just doesn't exist. Yeah. And Phil talks in the book a lot about that, a world where humans are no longer in charge. And how do you handle that, especially in a world where this American idea of good versus evil and American values of going where the action is and always being the good guy. And so what happens when you realize that you're not in charge here, you can't control these people, I mean, or, and some of them are good, some of them are bad. But I think it's also interesting, the dynamic of like the other side of America, which is super fearful and judgy. Phil constantly chooses work over family. You know, it's like, <laughs> there's being in danger, his wife calls, he's like, later, later, like, gotta go get the picture. These notions of celebrity, and, and it's not just like, what do we do with a superhero from a destruction or from the stadium type of world, but also like these are role models for your kids. And and so I think that dynamic Phil talks about a lot. And I think it's a good one of how how does do we as a society think if yeah, we live in New York, the greatest city in the world, but also we're not in control of it at all. Yeah, I Phil is I one of the things I think that makes this book stick is instead of just showing lots of bystander stories, it's Phil's perspective. And again, first time I read it, I was significantly younger. And now I find myself becoming an old curmudgeon like Phil in book four, <laughs> you know, yep. like, because it's like this jaded uh, and I, the industry, quote unquote, that you, me and Ryan inhabit is technology and marketing and advertising and stuff. And it pisses me off more and more. All the headlines are game-changing headlines that are coming out every day, just like the latest superhero thing that Phil's observing by book three and book four. 
but I've seen enough. I'm like, yeah, you go cover it, dude. Yeah, like there's this massive fight at Madison Square Garden. And he's like, you know, I'm more concerned on this minutia sort of thing, this deeper long form story, the Gwen Stacy thing. You go handle that other sensationalist stuff. I don't care anymore. And I yeah, feel I'll go like light a cigarette and not talk to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not that I'm not that far into Philness <laughs> yet. But even like the moment when right before Galactus, he's at the zoo and the guy is like screaming about apocalypse because of like the floods because of Atlantis or blah 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 blah. He gets pissed off. I, I think I'm probably closer to Phil. I'm probably in that transition point because of Trump and the pandemic of like phil before and after galactus like does any of the shit this other minutia actually matter and i really liked that arc of his yeah what are your thoughts on phil do, do you like phil more in some points versus other points um you clearly don't appreciate his work ethic <laughs> yeah no i i did like phil i mean i actually do find myself relating to it right i think uh, i agree with the notion of when you're young and you see an opportunity like ride it, be there, work hard. You know, now I've got wife and kid and a mortgage. And so those things change and Phil went out to the suburbs. And so I think there was some of that, but I, I liked his general arc from being part of and enabling the small-minded masses of short-term thinking to, I think, I can't remember the character, but like someone worth saving is what he Gwen talks Stacey. about. Or like, yeah. So Gwen, Gwen. so, you know, there is. Wait, really, really quick. Do you know who, do you know who Gwen Stacy is before reading this book? I was mixing it's up okay. with Peter Parker's girlfriend, and I can't remember which one was which. <laughs> Peter Parker had two loves in his life. His first great love, the one that got away, was Gwen Stacy. Then, after Gwen dies, spoiler alert, him and Mary Jane end up together. But so, Gwen's okay, the first, so only half technically. <laughs> yeah, no, no. But I mean, I guess for a comic book, and I, I'm asking this question on purpose, not to put you in a bad place, but like, for us comic book fans, like... Gwen Stacy is just as much part of Peter Parker's mythology as Uncle Ben and Aunt May is, right? And it was highly controversial. I'd actually recommend after this podcast, read the in-between articles in this volume that you read, because the the one right before issue four is the guy who drew the Gwen Stacy thing originally. And it was a very controversial thing when Marvel killed Gwen back in the day. Mm. So anyway, my sorry, my point is it was and as a it comes back to the idea of fan service. As a fanboy, of course, he's going to check the boxes of the biggest things in the world, Galactus and World War II and mutants, right? And racism. But to go as deep as Gwen Stacy, they always meant for that to be the end of innocence, basically, right? Anyway, I don't remember what you were saying about Gwen, but Gwen was like such a big deal. And it, well, it really hit me harder this time. Yeah. To making Phil, I mean, this, this somebody worth saving concept that a superhero would identify him as an enlightened being, right? Going through all, I mean, I guess I'll turn it, turn it back on you. Was that story arc, did you appreciate that? Or was that uh, tried and true? Is that something that happens in lots of comic books or stuff that's coming out recently that makes it less special? Uh, so in actual plots of comics, big, terrible things happening is there for shock value. There's no surprises anymore when things happen. But when... It, when Gwen Stacy died, nothing like that had ever been done before. People's parents have died. You know, Peter's an orphan. Bruce Wayne's parents were killed. Robin, I don't think, had been killed by this point in the 60s or 70s when they killed Gwen, right? That happened in the 80s. So it was a big deal to kill such a major character. And then you have Peter's grief for like literally the next 
like several years, right? Like, so to see in Marvels, seeing him go that deep, that at the human level, and they don't talk about the effect on Peter Parker. You know, if anything, uh, did you recognize when Peter Parker shows up a couple of times in the book? Did you when they mentioned him as the boyfriend of, of Gwen? Okay, okay. There's a couple in so Phil's a photojournalist. Peter Parker made his bones taking freelance photography of Spider-Man. Like he would like mm. uh web his camera up and take pictures of Spider-Man and sell them to J. Jonah Jameson. And J. Jonah Jameson hated Spider-Man and would like publish. And again, Phil hated that that's what uh, the publisher of the Daily Bugle would do. And so there's a scene where he sees Peter Parker coming in being like, hey, Jonah, I got more pictures of Spider-Man. It'll make him look terrible. And Peter's just like trying to make a buck, even though he is Spider-Man. And Phil's like, fuck this guy. Fuck this guy. <laughs> and I guess it comes back. There's there's a lot of similar to Gwen Stacy, and that's probably the ultimate in fan service in this book. But there's like a lot of little moments like that that continually show up. Um, but I, I think the first time I read it, you know, book one was, okay, this is interesting. I don't really understand the early days of superheroes. Like I knew Submariner and Human Torch, the original Android one. But it was like, okay, I see where you're going. This is interesting. Then book two is like, oh, okay, mutants, I got you. This is really interesting. And then book three is Galactus. So I think originally book two and book three really struck me harder because I was like, wow, this is how the world interprets these massive events. But I think as an adult or a more form, fully formed adult now with the mortgage, with the kids, book the end of book three, the reaction post-Galactus, the scathing commentary of our society and our return to innocence with Gwen Stacy only to have it robbed. Like, I think that hit me harder. That resonated more with me because I find myself closer to that side of Phil's journey as a relatable character. Hmm. Yeah. What, were there particularly books that you liked more than others in this one? I mentioned this a little bit earlier where I wasn't sure if I could summarize the whole thing in a tweet because it really is like the same concept throughout mm. time. And so I thought the first one like really pulled me in because of this concept of like what happens if, you know, Aliens come from outer space. Like, how does this react? <laughs> and I think some of it felt a little hokey, right? Almost like a horror movie where you're like, don't go into the basement. And, you know, <laughs> Phil's just like, we're going to go move to the suburbs because it doesn't happen in the suburbs. It only happens in the city. Like, yeah, we'll just go escape this. And so I think like laying out the concept and the parallel universe, I thought was the most striking thing for me, which really all happened in the first book. And I, this idea of like, are they on our side? Are they not on our side? And the Submariner going back and forth and how fickle, you know, the, the public goes back and forth of loving and hating. You know, I thought that was, it introduced the concepts really well for me, especially because, you know, there are probably less Easter eggs that I noticed that might have mm -hmm. come more through as it got closer to some of the more uh, famous superheroes. Yeah, I think one argument that a lot of geeks bring up all the time, and they did it really well in the mutant issue was, why is it okay for mutants to not be okay but then superheroes to be okay right like they're all I hate to say freaks with powers right but one is scary and different and one isn't and they touch on that a little bit mm. and it's and they never solved the argument they they just expose the hypocrisy of it all without explicitly saying it were there things that that you didn't like I think just the tiredness of the concept. Yeah, I mean, it didn't necessarily, that didn't develop. So like what developed was over time and some of the character arcs and just seeing how society changed a little bit. But for me, the concept felt like I was reading more or less the same thing over and over again. So I guess I'll ask the question I opened with, like 
I, I assume most of our all three of our listeners. Hi, Auntie Pinky. But also, <laughs> like you, you've seen a lot of the Marvel movies, right? How does this compare to those? Like, I, I know it's like comparing apples and oranges, but I don't know. Does it get the same Rotten Tomatoes score? Better or worse? Middle of the pack? Well, it's tough. I mean, if, if it's Rotten Tomatoes, I think probably. But what I think I'll get more out of this is it's a fun thought exercise. Right. How would I, you know, I've got a family, right? You've got a family. Like, how would we handle this if there were superheroes coming, going around in, in the city and there was destruction? And I know that with a family and even some of the protests that happened over the last year, like I stayed away from them, right? Just because I had a pregnant wife at the time and it's like, mm-hmm. wasn't quite sure where things were going. And so I think the thought exercise of what happens when there is change that is violent and destructive, whether it's good or bad. I think is valuable. You know, when I watch uh, a superhero movie, I think it's more for the entertainment. I don't find myself usually thinking about it. I mean, maybe Joker, I thought a little bit more after about mental health, but like uh, the Spider-Man movies, which also some of them weren't, in my opinion, all that well done. So it was like, they're <laughs> fine, they're entertaining. And I think that Marvel's does to some extent just entertain, but I do find myself thinking about some of the components that I probably wouldn't have on a typical superhero movie. So so it's really interesting. Something this podcaster YouTuber that I follow named Patrick H. Willems talks about is Joss Whedon, rest in peace, the guy who did the first Avengers movie. In that first Avengers movie, and a little bit of the second one, he made it a point to have scenes that showed the human toll. So in the Battle of New York, there's scenes of the bank and how citizens are reacting to it, right? In mm. the second one, Age of Ultron, he literally... And later on, even in Civil War, they talk a little bit more about the human fallout and the human stories from all of this death and destruction. But I think they eventually started to disney all of the movies to just be fun action escapes. We don't want to talk about the human toll on that. People are experiencing the human toll in life right now. So let's just focus on the action adventure of these titans. But yeah, I think it is a good thought exercise for that. And honestly... The mirror reflected is that we don't respond well to these things as humanity, as society. And honestly, I think that's the indictment. Like, we're not responding well to the challenges of our times, be it climate change, pandemic, racism. We're choosing to squabble or get lost in the reality TV minutia of it. And I think back in the 90s, this book said, if something weird were to happen, here's how we would respond. The same way we've always responded. Yeah. <laughs> like we don't With we don't rise to the riots. occasion. And and if anything in the last year has taught us, we're not I sorry, I'm a bit of a pessimist here. We're not we're not rising to the occasion sometimes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's in the micro of like, you know, what we decide is the options almost like should we just escape, right? Go move to some nowhere Canada, <laughs> like live in a, a cabin and like that's we, we constantly decide not to do that. That's not what we want to do. Like we will live, we will live through it. We'll persevere, we'll fight. But I think at, you know, at a macro level, you're right. Like we're not rising to the occasion to, it's a challenge. I don't know. So I guess, would you recommend this book to a non-comic book or a non-superhero person? Like, you know, the same way, you know, oh, if you don't like superheroes, you should read Watchmen or things like that. Like, uh, is this book worth sharing with someone who's not into comics? Yeah, I mean, I would. I mean, I think this is like, you know, my third or fourth graphic novel as a format that I've read from start to finish. And I like one of them being a <laughs> one of them being Iago, right? And so, yeah, and Watchmen and a couple others, but not that frequently. And so while I think the concept 
could be summarized like pretty I, <laughs> in I, a tweet. <laughs> I think others would enjoy it. Like I don't think you need a big background or anything to pick it up and get something from it. It's not a long read. I wouldn't necessarily it's like a must, like but I would for someone who's new to the space or has never read a graphic novel or has a cursory understanding of superheroes and wants to get a little deeper. I think this is a, a good parallel to what they've been exposed to through like osmosis in society. Awesome. Well, I don't know, John, anything else about Marvel's worth saying in your, your lengthy <laughs> notes? No, I mean, not on my end. I'm curious on your end what your favorite Easter eggs were, because I feel like I probably was not able to understand some of that at, at that level. Oh, man. I mean, I'll just flip backwards through the book. Like at the very end, that picture with the little boy, like, hey, I just want a picture. And the last thing he says is, take our picture with young Mr. Daniel Ketch here, a nice, normal, ordinary boy. Danny Ketch would later on become ghostwriter. <laughs> like, you know, what else? Man, there's there's a lot. Kingdom Come, as which I mentioned after Alex Ross was like a superstar, is like chock full of Easter eggs. So there's definitely, I wouldn't so much call them Easter eggs. The Danny Ketch one absolutely is one, but nods and winks to fans. So Peter Parker showing up as like a sniveling photojournalist that Phil Sheldon just really doesn't respect. He doesn't like it all. You know, some of the Luke Cage stuff, there's, you know, in the, this is a really small one. I didn't recognize until I read like the in-between volume thing, the guy driving the cab as Phil Sheldon's chasing the Green Goblin, uh, who's kidnapped mm -hmm. Gwen Stacy. So the way Alex Ross paints is he actually would take photos of friends so he could paint the light accurately. So the person he photographed for all the cabbie scenes was the guy who drew the issue, John Ramada. So that's that's an interesting one, um, but that's definitely not one I picked up. You know, I, it's it, it, the newspapers were always interesting in the sense that the, it wasn't just the headline of publisher calls Galactus a hoax, but it was also the other headlines, Goliath Returns to the Avengers. And so what these guys, Buziak and Ross specifically, were doing was combing through literally issues and issues of Marvel Comics on incidents that happened and that were happening in parallel. And the thing that made Marvel stand out from DC was DC was happening in these fake cities, Metropolis, Gotham City, and the heroes would occasionally meet up and team up like in the Justice League. But in Marvel Comics, this was all happening in New York City, and all of this stuff was happening concurrently. Mm. Um, so if the Avengers were out of town, because they were battling a space battle, that was legitimately a thing like, oh, well, I guess it's up to the Fantastic Four to solve this. And in the back of the graphic novel, they actually show almost like a bibliography of what all the references are to what storylines. So it's more fan service than Easter eggs. And I think that's another reason <coughs> I question, you know, it holds up for fanboys because we're like, oh, yeah, I remember that happening. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That was a big deal. And for everyone else, is it just window dressing or more importantly, it distracts from the main story to your point of could you have done it shorter? Well, if you could, you wouldn't have done all the world building. Right. So, yeah, I think that's what had me questioning it. I become more cognizant of especially on this podcast. Most of the guests we bring on are not people who read a lot of comics. Occasionally they are right. But wondering how this book holds up and with this book specifically in a world where the Marvel Cinematic Universe, these obscure characters like Sharon Carter, like people know who Sharon Carter is now. Like, really? You know, people actually know a lot more about Loki than they ever have, probably more than I used to. Right. So in that world, does this stuff hold up or does it not? And that was my curiosity. And honestly, a little bit of my trepidation as I reread it, because I was reading it through the lens of someone who's 
now seeing all of his stuff come to life already, whereas this book originally was the first time we saw it really come to life. And do some of the more modern comics, are they taking place in modern day where there's cell phones and there's TikTok? Because uh, I think part of where this does hold up is like, this is an era of mass media. And so to me fits, you know, where, you know, d- does, does have the comic books grown up or do they stay in this era? It's really interesting that everything's in the modern era, like mostly. So, uh, and what's interesting about that. So there's, there's a couple comments to unpack there. So one, Spider-Man came out in the sixties, as did the Fantastic Four. And we are now 60 years past the 60s. So if Peter Parker got bit by a radioactive spider, let's just say in 1960, as a 15-year-old teenager, Peter Parker in the comics is not 75. So Mm. time has a loose meaning, right? Like, And when DC tries to bend over backwards to redo continuity over and over again to make it work, and you just got to let go of that. Peter Parker... Nowadays, Peter Parker is like our age. He's in his 30s and 40s, right? So he clearly has grown up from that teenager who saw his girlfriend die on the bridge. But there have been, uh, interestingly enough, and I'll pick on Spider-Man a little bit, there have been a couple of attempts to retcon this. One is there was a really good reboot of Spider-Man in the late 90s, early 2000s called Ultimate Spider-Man. And it presupposes, okay, what if Spider-Man getting bit by a radioactive spider was a 15-year-old in 1999 or 2001? Like, instead of being a photojournalist for the Daily Bugle, he's the social media web editor, right? And at first it came off as, this is corny, but then it was a more relatable teen hero. A similar, what inspired the Avengers movie was the Ultimates, which was in that universe, like, and George W. Bush is the president, right? So there have been occasional with these classic heroes retelling in the modern era. But there's also been like, come on, these characters, yes, they're not 75 years old, we're going to age them to 30 or 40. So they maybe they have been around for 10 or 20 years. And then the last thing and this is so Ultimate Spider-Man is actually something Ryan and I might be reading on this podcast because he's reading them all on a tablet in quarantine in Korea right now. Mm-hmm. But Marvel has done another really interesting gimmick called Life Story, where they do presuppose, okay, Spider-Man, 15-year-old, gets bitten in the 60s. Now let's go through the decades. 1975, what's happening in the world? Peter Parker's 25. 1985, what's happening in the world? Peter Parker's 35. Fast forward, so such that he is, by the time you get to 2020, and cell phones and the internet. And Peter Parker's a 75-year-old man. And so that's interesting. I think, and this is our issue with superhero comics with Ryan and I, nothing ever really changes. They're like frozen in time, which yeah. is probably why Iron a lot of us- have will... a sub stack. <laughs> <laughs> he, he should be soon. I mean, he's definitely not on TikTok. But what's more interesting, and a lot of people who are anti-woke media get pissed off about this is, okay, Let's make Captain America a black man. Let's one of my favorite comics, which we've done an episode on not comics, I should say new characters in the last 20 years, two of them, Miles Morales, the black Spider-Man, who's not Peter Parker. He's another kid who gets bitten, right? Mm -hmm. He's not from Queens. He's from Brooklyn. Kamala Khan, the Pakistani American girl in Jersey City who gets superpowers. There are these more realistic takes. So it's okay to inhabit the Marvel Universe. And you don't have to redo the heroes. Let's tell new stories. Let's invent new characters. But then obviously independent comics don't have any of that baggage to deal with, right? There's books like Paper Girls, which talks about modern teenagers dealing with time travel. So um, 
is a wide answer to your question, I guess, is what I would say. In comics today, they're not all taking place in the 60s and 70s. But occasionally there are comics like Mad Men that want to be period pieces. Yeah. And you should read all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make a list. Maybe we'll have Please you do. back. Well, not Ryan. <laughs> John, <laughs> thank you for coming on, giving me an excuse to read an old favorite and giving me your cynical millennial take on it. Thanks for having me. I appreciated the lack of murder and incest in this one. So uh, thanks for having me again. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Be sure to share with a friend, subscribe, and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See lots of pretty pictures of the books we read at qtdcomics.com. And since we're sure no one's listening, prove us otherwise. Shoot an email over to say what I got right and what I got wrong at qtdcomics at gmail.com. Give you a social media handle, but we're old. That feels like too much work. I'm Roman Segel. And I am and have always been Ryan Joe. <laughs>